Hello everyone, welcome back to World Diplomacy. This is going to be the last episode of 2022. Once again, here with your favorite podcast on international affairs, uh, geopolitics. My name is Fabio. I'm speaking to you directly from the, the heart of the EU, Brussels, and, and I'm freezing my pants. The winter is here. Gas is really expensive. Thank you very much, Putin. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm here with the other hosts of the English version. All of us are here, Christian, Tanya, and Aramis. So how are you guys? How are you, Tanya? You're right, Fabio. Uh, it's way too cold in Brussels, and I'm now in Spain to celebrate Christmas with my family and my friends. And actually, I'm already missing Brussels, but not the weather, that's for sure. And this is our last episode of 2022, so I'm a little bit sad, but at the same time excited. And just to know for our listeners, we have just recorded uh, Keeping Up with the Warrior in Spanish, and it has been a very interesting conversation. So you can now just go to our program in Spanish and listen to the new episode. And regarding this episode, as you said, Fabio, we are going to do a 2022 review. And wow, it's been a rough year in the international sphere. What do you think, Aramis? Yeah, um, December is here and the year is about to end. Actually, it's been a year since we decided to start this segment in English. Our first episode was in January. And it was called Hit Me With Your Best Shot 2022. And we made some predictions what will happen in 2022. And I think we did quite a good job in actually finding the most important topics. We talked about the elections in the EU and in Latin America, the US midterms, the Taliban takeover, and of course, the concentration of troops near the Ukrainian border that looked quite worrisome back then. But many people did not think that uh, Russia would actually invade Ukraine. Well, of course, except for me, because <laughs> as I already said in Keeping Up with the Warriors in the last episode, I, I re-listened to the episode and I kind of predicted it. I don't want to brag about it, but I think it's, uh, it's it wasn't bad. And, um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I think now it's time to reflect on our predictions of 2022. And look at the year, what are the most important developments and uh, make some reflection on how the next year will look like. What are the most important topics to look at? So, Chris, do you agree with me? Oh, no, for sure. It's been a crazy year. And yeah, it, starting it off, it was it was surreal for me. I was I was writing a paper on the 2014 annexation of Crimea uh, in relation to the increasing tensions at the border uh, that was Uh, unfolding at the end of last year between Russia and NATO. So for it then to escalate into a full-on invasion was kind of surreal having having that context for, for my paper. And as we all know, that conflict has taken up public attention throughout the year, uh, although it has been dwindling uh of course uh, since the since the first few months of the invasion uh but it it's been been staying relevant and there have been so many developments and i i'm sure expert analysts and and such as you are that have this special focus on the region have uh, have been paying a lot of attention i i've tried to keep up but it's uh again it's been there's been a lot of other things uh happening and and i think that as as when hearing other experts also saying is that it might have negatively impacted attention giving to other international events this year. There's been a lot of both frightening and interesting developments in the last year all over the globe. For example, on the Latin American front, there's been great seeing victories of uh, Gustavo Petro in Colombia and Lula in Brazil. In the case of Colombia that I, I work a lot with in, in my research, uh, it will have a big impact on the implementation of the 
2016 peace agreement, which is far behind its goals already, and and Brazil uh, will hopefully be able to target policies that deal with preservation and restriction of extractive industries in the Amazon. And yeah, as as predicted, there we had some tensions uh, from from the election. Uh, I think last week we saw some Bolsonaro supporters uh, pull a U.S. January 6 on the police headquarters in Brasilia. Uh, I, I think Fabio also will take us through more of the Latin American section later. Yeah, so I think a uh, quote that summarizes the last year pretty, pretty well uh, is uh, one from uh, Vladimir Lenin, which uh, says that there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. I I could not agree more, Chris. Honestly, I think 2022 has seen tremendous geopolitical changes, and we're going to talk about it, as you guys have all said in this uh, in this episode. Um, and as as Armis said, the first episode we recorded was called "Hit Me with Your Best Shot 2022." A great song, by the way. So I thought that maybe for this this episode to look back in the year, we could use another song. And what comes to my mind is uh, Don't Look Back in Anger, you know, by Oasis. It's a beautiful song. And honestly, I don't want to look back in 22 with anger, but I, I have to. I mean, honestly, I think that the, the, the main thing that has changed geopolitics this year was the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That arm is, it's, it's true that you were really, uh, I, I listened to the episode as well, and, and you had great points. And actually, that's the things that happened. Putin was cornered. So many factors were involved in the decision, but it totally change the way that we see geopolitics and, and the years to come. So this world tour is going to start uh, here. Then maybe we can talk about the post-Soviet space. Then we can talk about maybe the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and we can finish in Asia. So folks, why don't we start uh, this 2022 throwback and uh, we take the conversation from here from the EU. So uh, as, as we have said back in January, we talked about the elections in France. We thought that Macron had a, a really good chance to win, and at the end he did. So just to start this conversation, I would like to maybe ask uh, Tania, how do you see this in this post-Merkel era? Now that Macron is the, the, was the winner of this election and with the war in Ukraine, do you think that Macron is the new face of the EU in 2022? What is your opinion on that? So um, the role of Macron in 2022 has been very active. As you have said, especially, I think, in relation with the war in Ukraine, supporting the country um, due to the advance of Russian troops and with the consequence of the energy crisis and in many other aspects. And maybe some of our listeners don't agree to consider him the face of the EU right now. But actually, um, not only with the war in Ukraine, but he, he has been very active uh, regarding also the fight against climate change with measures that uh, favor the reduction of greenhouse gases. He was also very clear saying he want to make France a leader in decarbonized hydrogen. So yeah, I think uh, he has he has been the, the face of the EU. Uh, we can consider that. And on the other hand, we have Giorgia Meloni winning the elections in Italy. So what do you think about that, guys? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, at the end, it's true that we are seeing new leaders in the EU, some more familiar faces. It's true that uh, Macron's still there. But as you guys uh, just mentioned, uh, Meloni being in power now, it's, it's interesting because she's in a coalition government with Berlusconi. And he has he mm -hmm. has had some particular relations with Putin, which everyone was a little bit concerned. But uh, maybe now things with Italy will not drift that much because they, they need a lot of those uh, COVID re recovery funds. So I think that Italy will not be playing that game a lot. Hungary, though, Hungary has been playing with that veto. I think definitely the, the shift in a post-Merkel era, as you say, will, will have 
we'll probably see France taking over the mantle now that Germany has been kind of MIA during the past year. It's going to be interesting seeing what, what happens with Macron. I, I remember during uh, what the, the one uh, match that I went to for the World Cup being uh, Morocco-France the other day, there was one shot on the on the screen where where you could see Macron at the game in Qatar and the entire bar booed <laughs> here in Brussels. Uh, I think you were there, Fabio. Probably yeah, yeah, remember. that was that was uh, strange. That was strange, yeah. And I and I was and I was yeah, and I was saying to to some other people then at the bar then that imagine that I don't think there there's any any other case where where so many people booed at the same time all over the globe for Macron, <laughs> because I can imagine if that's happening in this bar in Brussels, it's probably happening all over France, all over Morocco, all over so many places at the same time. He's he's definitely not the most popular, uh, although he did win uh, the elections. And but as we talked about earlier this year, when it was coming up, that essentially with with there being Le Pen and and uh, Macron in the last runoff, it it was the lesser of two evils for a lot of uh, people in France. So yeah, and Melon, it's going to be the, the other candidate that nearly went into the battle with Macron. I recently mm. read an article about his positions on the war in Ukraine. And back before the invasion started, he said that the whole situation of the military buildup is totally the fault, the mistake of NATO and not Russia. Because according to his vision, mm. NATO isn't circling Russia. So that's just directly copying the, the Russian narrative. Mm. So also with that regards, as uh, someone who is in in favor of the of the defense of Ukraine and its democratic values, I think it's good that neither Le Pen nor Mélenchon won this election. But to be honestly, guys, I think that the most uh, particular change that we've seen in foreign policy this past year has been Germany. And this, uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, Armin, so I'm going to let you to it, but this new policy that Germany is, is uh, following. Yeah, so what you are referring to, is the so-called Zeitenwende. Yeah, let me let me kind of go a little back to, to explain this term. So unlike the US, Poland and other EU member states, Germany used to be rather in favor of a cooperative approach with Russia, hoping that the economic and political cooperation would have a positive effect on the relations between the West and Russia. So for example, since the annexation of Crimea, as we all know, relations between the West and Russia got really bad. And Germany decided in this situation, nevertheless, that it will host another gas pipeline to Russia, the infamous Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And we should not forget that in the very days and weeks before the invasion, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz did not give a clear answer whether he will even shut down this pipeline as soon as an invasion would start. Then the invasion actually happened. And Scholz gave this very famous Zeitenwende speech. What he wanted to signalize with that is that this moment of the invasion is a turning point for Germany and a paradigm change. He called it, and I quote, a 180-degree course correction. So he aimed to construct something that historians will point to in the centuries to come. And it meant that German would adhere to a more assertive stance towards Russia. And it promised to spend 100 billion euros as extra budget for the German military, which is 
infamously underfinanced. So that was also a huge uh, or a very important message to the world in this regard. But I would not say that he really held on to that, that he really made a 180 degree course correction. One can say that Germany is now the second biggest arms provider to Ukraine after the US, which is quite impressive. But they were very slow with providing those arms compared to their allies. And if we look at the arms given, we look at a comparison at GDP per capita, then we see that the Baltics, Poland, Great Britain and other states have given far more, far more support to Ukraine. And what we still have to see is that Germany, just like the EU, is still very much dependent on Russian resources. And the latest projections actually say that Germany will be dependent on Russian resources until 2026. Um, so, yeah, there have been investments in renewable energies and um, into resilience. There is a development that decreases the dependency towards Russia, but it's not enough. And actually, the imports of liquefied natural gas from Russia, so that's not gas that goes through the pipelines, but that comes by ship, has increased in the last month. So the dependency on Russia has grown. Germany is overall not that actor that is really leading on this assertive stance towards Russia. It's the US, it's Poland, it's the Baltic states. So, yes. Germany developed a more assertive stance, but not a 180-degree course correction. Interesting. No, no, no. Yeah, I agree. It's just uh, I find it fascinating the way that geopolitics are changing, specifically with the EU. And maybe if we shift the analysis a little bit further toward the East and we concentrate on what's been happening in Ukraine, um, armies, we've talked about this so many times in this podcast, but once again, can you maybe remind our listeners what's the situation on the ground in Ukraine? How's the war uh, developed so far? So to sum it up quickly, um, after the first weeks of the invasion, Russia controlled about 30% of the Ukrainian territory. Since then, two major retreats have taken place, and this number dropped below 20%. So still, the Russians control vast amounts of territory. And as was recently reported, uh, it's increasingly clear that they prepare to be in Ukraine for a longer period, at least many more months. So this will continue for a longer time. And um, I thought of the question, where will this develop to? What are the things to look at? And I would like to highlight two trends. So first of all, both the West and Russia are faced with shortages in their arsenals. But I would argue that ultimately the West has combined a far bigger industry and economic resources to compensate for that loss. And also we see opinion polls that show that Western support for Ukrainian arms transfers remains high. So I would argue that this shortage problem is rather an advantage that will play in the hands of the Ukrainians and the West. And um, another factor that I think is important at the moment is that the nuclear option is off the table. I mean, of course, Putin could theoretically fire a nuclear weapon anytime. But in the past few uh, weeks and months, China explicitly warned Russia not to use the nuclear option. And since then, they have refrained from even verbally threatening the West with their nuclear arsenal. And this also has a positive effect on Ukrainian arms transfers, because now the U.S. is open to support Ukraine with better equipment that they used to withhold because they did not want to risk a nuclear war with Russia. So... The, there are other trends as well, of course, but I think those two trends are among the most important. 
and they both play in the hands of Ukraine. So I think rather of a positive development in, in the war in the upcoming months. But what we shouldn't forget at the same time to have a more balanced picture is that Russia is still a major regional power and their leadership does not seem to be willing to take or it seems to be willing to take a lot of damage into account to win this war. So I think we will continue to see an atrocious battle and no tremendous shift of battle lines. And um, yeah, as my description just showed, the power of Ukraine is very much dependent on the power of NATO. So Tanya, can you please explain to me what is the current state of NATO? Did it manage to become stronger in 2022? Sure. Um, NATO is so much more stronger armies. Finland and Sweden joining NATO is also a major change in the geopolitical configuration of European security and something that we, sh we would have considered impossible in January. And the process has actually been quite fast. But uh, yeah, we can count now on two more members. So that's good for, for the rest of the members. And I personally think that the invasion of Ukraine has given NATO a reason to exist again. Yeah, definitely, guys. The situation with Ukraine in Europe has been a big, um, a big focus of, of international politics uh, this year. However, uh, in this review, we need to go around the world. And of course, we would like to talk about hours each of these topics. But I think we've talked uh, a little bit enough about this uh, geographical region. I think now we can focus a little bit more on a different one. And I think another event that has put a specific part of the world in the focus, it's uh, the World Cup. And I think that the Persian Gulf and the Middle East has been in our minds a lot recently with every football match that we've seen, all these cultural shocks. We saw all the corruption, all the controversy that surrounds this World Cup. And a couple week, weeks ago, we had the Qatar Gate here in Brussels when apparently uh, one of the vice presidents of the EU parliament was charged for taking bribes from Qatari officials. So I think this is just outrageous. And I'm sure that the corruption is not something that we only see in the global south. We see corruption everywhere. And Chris, I wanted to ask you a little bit because I know that you uh, have not been supporting the World Cup a lot. You, you stand against all of these uh, human rights uh, violations that Qatar has doing. So I just want to ask you, what is your opinion on, on the whole thing? It's we we have been discussing this in 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 several instances where where it's been a plan to go seeing matches and and all of that those kind of things. And I I think that in general, um, it's fine. People people going to see see matches, uh, especially when it's usually done at a bar. It's not like you're supporting directly Qatar by by doing so. It makes a lot of sense that it's getting the backlash that it has. Uh, first of all, it's a World Cup that was awarded with corruption being deeply embedded in the whole process uh, leading up to Qatar uh, gaining the, the World Cup in the first place. Uh, then we have allegations uh, and, and numbers, uh, statistics that, that uh, pointed in the direction that there has been a lot of deaths from migrant workers coming primarily from... Uh, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Pakistan, um, in in Qatar that that were were contracted to come there, really scandalous labor, labor contracts uh, to construct these uh, these stadiums, uh, all of the infrastructure that goes into hosting the World Cup. Um, I know that essentially, and what what remains the cause is that a lot of workers have died on site working for for the Qatari uh, government to to construct the infrastructure and the stadiums and that is something that i think that everyone should should uh, 
be appalled by and and the the problem we face there is that this is happening everywhere when when the world cup is awarded unfortunately we saw the same in in south africa in brazil this is something that really has to change within the within the sports world uh, also with the olympics all of these sports events end up pushing primarily poor under uh privileged people in in the cities and countries that that are hosting further out and without compensation constructing uh, stadiums on what used to be homes etc and then we have the whole problem of qatar not allowing women not allowing solidarity mm -hmm. for lgbtq plus communities uh, in their stadiums i know that we're supposed to be uh, sensitive to other cultures in in that regard and and i'm i'm fine with uh, allowing it to be an arena for the qataris and also a lot of other countries with with similar culture to to finally have their opportunity to uh, host these games and it has been a tremendous uh tremendous uplift for for a lot of countries that have never really been visible in these tournaments i support that but i i don't align with the this uh this vision of not including women not including lgbtq mm -hmm. plus so for me personally i don't see the point of supporting it but on a, on a general uh level i i i yeah yeah, no, and I agree with you. Like, because I love the sport, I love football, and I, I, I respect people that decided to don't watch and boycott the the games, don't support because of of those things. And and uh, I think that's a great thing. It, from my side, I think uh, I watched the games, I enjoyed the game itself, but I think it made us uh, put all of these problems in the spotlight. And every time that we talked about the World Cup this year. Uh, remind everyone about all the things that happened and all these cultural clashes, all these corruption scandals. So I think it's it goes it goes both ways. It's true that uh, Qatar is going to get a lot positive outcomes from this World Cup, but at the same time, I think it's it's our opportunity to criticize everything that we don't like. And uh, talking about all of these uh, attacks against human rights, uh, I think we can maybe go back to Afghanistan. I remember that in that uh, 2020, 2022 uh, episode we did, armies talked about how things might develop in the country. So armies, uh, how is the situation uh, looking today in Afghanistan? Well, first of all, what we can say is that politically, the Taliban took control over the country. I mean, there are still terrorist attacks, insurgencies, but the Taliban managed to control this huge territory for the most part. However, they are still not recognized by the international community. But what I would like to focus on is the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Since the US and its allies left, the economy collapsed and there is still no sign that it will heal anytime soon. So more than a half of the population is suffering under severe food shortages. And now a cold winter is coming and international aid does exist, but it's severely underfinanced. I think since we are here in the wealthy West, I think it's our responsibility to help the Afghan people um, one possibility is to, is to donate to one of the humanitarian organizations on the ground. And um, we have provided a link in the show notes that are really an, an easy tool to donate to Afghanistan. You just click the link and within a few minutes, the donation is, the transaction is fulfilled. 
and uh, you can help people get through this tough winter in Afghanistan. Every, everything that you can do to support causes, uh, I mean, sometimes we might think that we have not a lot of, of, of power to, to actually change things, but it's by little actions that maybe sometimes uh, we can. And maybe, guys, jumping once again of preaching, remember, we have to do a world tour in less than an hour, and it's it's a lot. We cannot, I wish we could talk hours about every single situation that's happening in the world, but for an episode, we, we can't. Uh, anyways, I just want to um, do a little recap of what happened in Latin America this year. Two main elections uh, shifted completely the 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 politics, the uh, the the, um, the regions, brother politics. Uh, Brazil and Colombia, with the victory of of Petro and, and Lula, definitely made Latin America now come mostly uh, left leaning, which I think it's interesting for the the broader dynamics with this relation towards the U.S. towards maybe other blocs such as the EU. So I think it's really interesting how uh, we're going to see these developments in 2023. I honestly was expecting a little bit of more conflict and, and violence, at least in, in in Brazil, just as Chris said in the introduction. Uh, certain elements of, of the Brazilian uh, politician side were were asking for uh, a coup d'etat by the by the by the military forces against Lula. So it didn't happen, thanks to God. Uh, violence is never the solution. And something that I was not expecting at all was to see what happened in Peru. This was not a military coup d'etat. It was a, a governmental coup d'etat made by the president, made by Peru's president, trying to do a self coup d'etat that failed. It lasted around uh, two hours, <laughs> and then the military did not did not accept what he was saying. He was pretty much trying to close down the parliament because he was being investigated because of uh, different scandals. I think it was the fourth time that they have tried to impeach him. And the opposition didn't even have the numbers to take him out of power. So in a, in a crazy political maneuver, he ended up being uh, imprisoned. And now things are still developing in Peru. There was the vice president that was um, given the presidency. And I think that elections are going to come in 2024. But the situation is still a, bit, a little bit intense. And I'm sure that we're going to do a, an episode concentrated in Peru this new this new year. And another country that I wanted to mention, because it's my country, it's Mexico. And in this past year, uh, we've seen the so-called four transformation of the country. And uh, honestly, I don't think that, that this is transforming the country forward. I think it's going back into the one-party uh, rule system that the the current government is trying to change. But uh, honestly, the security situation hasn't improved. Uh, Mexico has had one of the worst records uh, of the fight against the pandemic. And there's this worrying thing about the militarization of the country. Uh, there was also uh, an attempt to reform the electoral system, so try to politicize the independent electoral system, which, of course, it's a, a direct hit against democracy, and all of this is done under the under the excuse that uh, in order for the for the presidency, the executive power to to do political change, they need more power. But at the end, it's a it's a hit against uh, democratic democratic rule. We need checks and balances. I think that's the base of any uh, democracy, any government. And um, unfortunately, in my country, we're not seeing uh, these trends. So well, let's see. 2024 will be the last year for AMLO. So now the question is, who's going to take over uh, the for the Minister of Foreign Affairs abroad or maybe the the, the um, city council of Mexico City? We're going to see. Mexican politics are really interesting uh, and we don't talk about them enough. We only talk about the, bar the bad part of Mexico, which is uh, narco-traffic uh, and other problems. But wonderful country. I, I love my country. <laughs> Anyways, guys, I think we can now jump into the last region that we're going to analyze in this episode. And this is Asia. We can just briefly say that we have seen a little bit of, of tension between India and Pakistan, but the real focus of the story, the main character of the story here is China. 
So Tanya, I'd like to ask you, how do you see things in China and what's the situation over there? Yes, Fabio, you're right. So we have a lot about China right now because it we, we know recently uh, about the COVID zero policy or measure that China adopted, but they came to an end. China has taken the consequences of COVID uh, very, seri very seriously, and it's the only major economy that remains isolated from the world and has closed its borders since March 2020. For the Chinese government, uh, the virus control came first and then the life, the well-being and other people comes the second. So therefore, the zero COVID policy has been based on domestic quarantines, massive blockades, well, as you know, and as you can imagine. And they have also uh, created quarantine camps for those people infected. So what we know is that the recent protest uh, began after a fire in the city of Rumki, which left 10 people dead and many people couldn't leave the, the building because it was closed during the quarantine. And because of that, people have taken to the streets to protest in more than 20 cities. So the government has therefore decided to put an end to these highly restrictive measures. But I, I think uh, it wasn't because of the protest. Part of the radical change is because of the economic damage that these policies are doing. Maintaining the quarantine suppose huge economic losses. Indeed, uh, the markets and the international trade is becoming weaker and weaker. The country's exports fell like 8.7% and the imports 10.6%, which is around $226 billion. So again, we see how opening the economy and the society improves the country's situation. And that's why they have decided to say goodbye to these uh, zero COVID policies. Yeah, China is the factory of the world. So if they export less, global economy is suffering under it. So really, uh, maybe perhaps uh, for the global wealth, an important development that the zero, co zero COVID policy has been abandoned, apparently. But let's see how long that will last, um, because the numbers will rise for sure. And then we will have to see how the Chinese leadership will react to this. Now, there are other issues in, in China as well, not only the zero COVID policy, but also what has been very much visible this year also with regards to the Ukrainian conflict is the potential conflict between Taiwan and China. So Tanya, could you please tell us more about that? Uh, it's very difficult to, to, to handle the situation because China has a lot of power and it exercises a lot of influence worldwide and in the region, in Asia. I think from the Western part, we should take care of uh, Taiwan and support Taiwan from Chinese aggressions because um, at least for me, I hope it doesn't happen like that, but it's not a crazy idea or situation China inviting Taiwan. I mean, I ha we have seen the situation in Ukraine, so we shouldn't take for granted our democracies and our dem democratic values. And I think we should yeah. uh, support Taiwan for sure. I couldn't agree more, Tony, honestly. And it's a thing that we were discussing, Armis and I, in Keeping Up With The Warriors in English, the, converse, the conversation ended up being really focused on, on China's long game and its policy towards Taiwan. And I remember Armis telling me, I mean, the broader international panorama were not expecting Russia to invade Ukraine, and they actually did it. So now thinking about Taiwan, it might be a similar situation where everyone is like, nah, they would never even there. And then they could do it. I mean, it's a possibility. Uh, but I agree with you, Tanya. I think we should 
support Taiwan, and it's true that China has a lot of power and influence to shift attention against uh, Taiwan, but we still need to to follow to those democratic values. We need to remember that Taiwan is a, it's a liberal democracy and they don't want to be part of China. So it's an interesting thing to see in 2023, how things develop. But as we said in, in Keeping Up, this is a long game. So maybe the policy regarding Taiwan is going to take a long, long time to, to little by little take over. So we're going to see that. And last but not least, I think one last thing that we can mention in this part is the um, the presence of Western actors in, in the Pacific. Uh, I would like to remind you guys of the AUKUS treaty between the US, uh, Australia and the United Kingdom to provide Australia with nuclear propelled submarines, which is a direct link to this Chinese brother aggressive policy in, in the Pacific. And I think that Japan's role is really interesting here as well. We had a great conversation with Portugal CNN correspondent in Tokyo. Uh, however, that, that episode is in the Spanish version because it was with the Spanish host. Uh, Hosts, but it was in English and it was a great, great chat regarding how Japan is going to uh, behave and, and how this relation between the U.S. and, and its Pacific allies is going to it's going to maybe transform, maybe increase, maybe decrease, because uh, a lot of attention is shifting towards Ukraine right now. But let's not forget that China is also a huge strategic rival for the U.S. and, and NATO and these Western allies. So things that also we need to have in mind for, for the coming year. But anyways, guys, I think we are coming to the conclusion, the end of our episode. And I just wanted to ask you if there's anything that you feel like we didn't touch, that we missed, just like a little quick uh, intake. So I'm going to start with you, Chris. Any Anything that you think we missed? With with the the amount of time we have and the the vast scale of any topic that we touch on, I I think it's impossible to to uh, have added much more within within our time unless we wanted to be even more superficial than we than we already did it. But I, I think we did a good job. Um, I think we could have uh, maybe looked more into discussion we had with Josephine regarding how COVID affected a lot of uh, African countries this year and how how that has been all or is continuing to be a struggle of recovering from. Also, the conflicts that have been happening there throughout the year, we, we've seen the conflict in Ethiopia progress with reaching uh, agreement for ceasefire to then deteriorating again to then being in this state of still still conflict and and mass deaths that really horrifying to to watch so that will be something that unfortunately has to be followed up closely in 2023 as well a lot of other topics around the the world are are really pressing right now and there are none bigger than any others uh, at the moment unfortunately one really important thing that we forgot to mention um and with all the things that have been going on this year, it's it's understandable that we we didn't manage to get through everything. But the protests in Iran that has been going on now for several months since at least summer and following a long line of of years with with protests uh, we we last saw in 2019 also uh, large protests where it was even projected that it would uh, would be toppling the regime um, is not yet happened and and we we should just hope that at some some point in time now there's there's going to be uh, a huge shift in the Iranian governing structures and uh, the way that people have been oppressed in the regime there especially women that has been taking on the lead of uh, of the protests this time and are 
really in need of all of our all of our uh, support uh, internationally, and and it's been it's been really interesting following uh, following these uh, protests and the what this means for the future of both Iran and the the region in general. We'll we'll have to see, but. Uh, Again, uh, our support to the Iranian people and the Iranian women in particular. We really wish you wish you the best and uh, hope that hope that as many of your of your causes will be fruitful in the coming year. So, Tanya, what about yourself? Any anything you think we missed uh, in the episode? Yeah, re- regarding China, uh, it had a lot of obstacles in 2022 and if you want to go more in deep with China remember our third episode of core diplomacy with our guest Felix he explained a lot uh, the uh, the Chinese uh, development strategy and the strategy they follow in the international sphere so if you are interested in China you could you can go now and listen to the to the episode and regarding NATO uh, there have been an increase in defense spending worldwide and also in NATO. So finally, Trump's dream became true. And out of curiosity, we know uh, Russia's new decision for uh, 2023 to increase uh, the duration of the compulsory military service. And in 2024, it will be uh, two years. So, wow, like uh, we are seeing a readjustment in military alliances, uh, military cooperation, as for example, with uh, with AUKUS. And China has led Japan and the Philippines to push for greater defense cooperation. Honestly, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine, the whole world is in tension and there are movements of troops, weapons, uh, shifts, planes. And I don't know what 2023 will bring us, but it is clear that this year uh, it has been very eventful. And I hope that all these tensions uh, will slow down a little bit, or at least they won't increase. Unfortunately, I think it's gonna, it's not going to be the case. I think that tensions will continue to increase. Uh, confrontation with Russia is still going to be there. Let's see how things go. I'm, I'm always a little bit pessimistic on the future. I wish I was not like this, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> things from my side that I think we missed, uh, just a couple of things that we have to mention. Shinzo Abe died. Well, he, he didn't die. He was murdered. That was a huge scandal in Japan. And I think we, we have to mention that. Uh, also, the queen died. Something we never thought was going to happen. Happened. The queen Elizabeth II died. That was weird as well. So just a couple of things I wanted to mention. A couple uh, interesting, uh, relevant people that are gone. Uh, rest in peace. And Aramis, um, just going to ask you to, to conclude this episode. What do you think we, we missed? I mean, I think Chris did a little spoiler alert. So climate change, what's going to happen with that in this year? Yes, I think it's very telling that in the overall overview that we gave today, climate change was not on the agenda. And it's telling because there was only very limited progress this year and there is not so much to talk about. I mean, like every year there was the climate change conference, but it did not bring about any major changes. Of course, you had investments into renewables that went up in the wake of the energy crisis. But what we can say in conclusion is that that's not enough by far. We need global mechanisms and treaties to achieve significant change and um, pressure on decision makers is needed for this. But where was Fridays for Future this year? I feel like since COVID, they were not able to have the momentum that they used to have before the pandemic struck. So in my personal opinion, if I have to conclude the year 2022, then I would suggest that it was a failure. 
because we lost decisive time to counter this issue. And it's not just some issue that will go away someday. It's, I think, the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced. All I can say is that hopefully 2023 will be better. And um, I am personally highly motivated to demonstrate, write letters to decision makers, do my part and hope that our generation will bring about the change needed to bring climate change back to the agenda. Hopefully we will see a year where Fridays will, for Future will have its comeback. I would like to, to make a call to, to our generation and say, let's make 2023 our year. Let's make this the year of fighting climate change. Let's uh, make the, the paradigm change and hopefully things will get better because we desperately need it. We do not have a lot of time left. And I think the decision is not so much whether um, we will have a negative impact of climate change because we're already seeing that and it will become worse. But the question is, how bad will it become? And we can do a lot. We can change a lot. And it is our responsibility to change it. And it's also what we can do. We are the young generation. So let's do it again. Let's make 2023 our year. Oh, Armis, thank you so much for ending in such a positive note. Honestly, I think it's it's true what you say. And yeah, I don't think there's a bigger challenge humanity, such an existential crisis and, and, and obstacle that we've seen in, in human civilization as climate change. So thank you very much for pointing that out. And guys, I think with this last comment, we finish uh, this year of analysis of uh, geopolitics, international affairs analysis. Thank you so much for your time, for your energy. A project like this takes a lot of energy time. So I, I really wanted to personally thank you. Chris, Tanya, Armis, your analysis has been great. People really like to, to listen to what we say. So let's continue like this in 2023 and hope you have a great vacation with your family, with your friends, and I'll see some of you back here in Brussels next year. Thank you so much, Fabio. Thank you for your dedication to the project. It's been great. Uh, see you next year. Thank you, Fabio. Yeah. We highly appreciate your effort. Thank you so much, Fabio. And, and thank you to our amazing Chris. It's been lovely, guys. We should do a, a war diplomacy meeting, huh? because in the Spanish version, we did one in Madrid, we did one in Mexico City. So it'd be really nice to meet up and maybe have some, some listeners around. So something also to look forward for this year. Anyways, guys, I think uh, with this, we finished the episode. Have a lovely vacation. And remember that for any analysis of international affairs, this is your favorite podcast. Mm -hmm.